Section 5 of Chapter 20 of A History of England. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Stephanie Lee. History of England by Thomas Babington Macaulay. Chapter 20, Section 5. It was not only in the capital that the Jacobites at this time made a great display of their wit. They mustered strong at Bath, where the Lord President Carmarthen was trying to recruit his feeble health. Every evening they met, as they phrased it, to serenade the Marquess. In other words, they assembled under the sick man's window, and there sang doggerel lampoons on him. It is remarkable that the Lord President, at the very time at which he was insulted as a Williamite at Bath, was considered as a staunch Jacobite at St. Germain's. How he came to be so considered is a most perplexing question. Some writers are of opinion that he, like Shrewsbury, Russell, Godolphin, and Marlborough, entered into engagements with one king while eating the bread of the other. But this opinion does not rest on sufficient proofs. About the treasons of Shrewsbury, of Russell, of Godolphin, and of Marlborough, we have a great mass of evidence, derived from various sources and extending over several years. But all the information which we possess about Carmarthen's dealings with James is contained in a single short paper written by Melfort on the 16th of October, 1693. From that paper it is quite clear that some intelligence had reached the banished king and his ministers, which led them to regard Carmarthen as a friend. But there is no proof that they ever so regarded him, either before that day or after that day. On the whole, the most probable explanation of this mystery seems to be that Carmarthen had been sounded by some Jacobite emissary much less artful than himself, and had, for the purpose of getting at the bottom of the new scheme of policy devised by Middleton, pretended to be well disposed to the cause of the banished king, that an exaggerated account of what had passed had been sent to St. Germain's, and that there had been much rejoicing there at a conversion which soon proved to have been feigned. It seems strange that such a conversion should even for a moment have been thought sincere. It was plainly Carmarthen's interest to stand by the sovereigns in possession. He was their chief minister. He could not hope to be the chief minister of James. It can indeed hardly be supposed that the political conduct of a cunning old man, insatiably ambitious and covetous, was much influenced by personal partiality. But if there were any person to whom Carmarthen was partial, that person was undoubtedly Mary, that he had seriously engaged in a plot to depose her, at the risk of his head if he failed, and with the certainty of losing immense power and wealth if he succeeded, was a story too absurd for any credulity but the credulity of exiles. Carmarthen had indeed at that moment peculiarly strong reasons for being satisfied with the place which he held in the councils of William and Mary. There is but too strong reason to believe that he was then accumulating unlawful gain with the rapidity unexampled even in his experience. The contest between the two East India companies was, during the autumn of 1693, fiercer than ever. The House of Commons, finding the old company obstinately averse to all compromise, had, a little before the close of the late session, requested the king to give the three years' warning prescribed by the charter. Child and his fellows now began to be seriously alarmed. They expected every day to receive the dreaded notice. Nay, they were not sure that their exclusive privilege might not be taken away without any notice at all. 
for they found that they had, by inadvertently omitting to pay the tax lately imposed on their stock at the precise time fixed by law, forfeited their charter, and though it would, in ordinary circumstances, have been thought cruel in the government to take advantage of such a slip, the public was not inclined to allow the old company anything more than the strict letter of the bond. Everything was lost if the charter were not renewed before the meeting of Parliament. There can be little doubt that the proceedings of the corporation were still really directed by child, but he had, it should seem, perceived that his unpopularity had injuriously affected the interests which were under his care, and therefore did not obtrude himself on the public notice. His place was ostensibly filled by his near kinsman Sir Thomas Cook, one of the greatest merchants of London and member of Parliament for the borough of Colchester. The directors placed at Cook's absolute disposal all the immense wealth which lay in their treasury, and in a short time near a hundred thousand pounds were expended in corruption on a gigantic scale. In what proportions this enormous sum was distributed among the great men at Whitehall, and how much of it was embezzled by intermediate agents, is still a mystery. We know with certainty, however, that thousands went to Seymour and thousands to Carmarthen. The effect of these bribes was that the Attorney-General received orders to draw up a charter regranting the old privileges to the old company. No minister, however, could, after what had passed in Parliament, venture to advise the Crown to renew the monopoly without conditions. The directors were sensible that they had no choice, and reluctantly consented to accept the new charter on terms substantially the same with those which the House of Commons had sanctioned. It is probable that, two years earlier, such a compromise would have quieted the feud which distracted the city, but a long conflict in which satire and calumny had not been spared had heated the minds of men. The cry of Dowgate against Leadenhall Street was louder than ever. Caveats were entered, petitions were signed, and in those petitions a doctrine which had hitherto been studiously kept in the background was boldly affirmed. While it was doubtful on which side the royal prerogative would be used, that prerogative had not been questioned, but as soon as it appeared that the old company was likely to obtain a regrant of the monopoly under the great seal, the new company began to assert with vehemence that no monopoly could be created except by act of Parliament. The Privy Council, over which Carmarthen presided, after hearing the matter fully argued by counsel on both sides, decided in favour of the old company, and ordered the charter to be sealed. The autumn was by this time far advanced and the armies in the Netherlands had gone into quarters for the winter. On the last day of October, William landed in England. The Parliament was about to meet, and he had every reason to expect a session even more stormy than the last. The people were discontented, and not without cause. The year had been everywhere disastrous to the Allies, not only on the sea and in the Low Countries, but also in Servia, in Spain, in Italy, and in Germany. The Turks had compelled the generals of the empire to raise the siege of Belgrade. A newly created marshal of France, the Duke of Noailles, had invaded Catalonia and taken the fortress of Rosas. Another newly created marshal, the skilful and valiant Catena, had descended from the Alps on Piedmont, and had, at Marsiglia, gained a complete victory over the forces of the Duke of Savoy. This battle is memorable as the first of a long series of battles in which the Irish troops retrieved the honour lost by misfortunes and misconduct in domestic war. Some of the exiles of Limerick showed, on that day, under the standard of France, 
of valor which distinguished them among many thousands of brave men. It is remarkable that on the same day a battalion of the persecuted and expatriated Huguenots stood firm amidst the general disorder round the standard of Savoy, and fell fighting desperately to the last. The Duke of Lorge had marched into the Palatinate, already twice devastated, and had found that Turenne and Duras had left him something to destroy. Heidelberg, just beginning to rise again from its ruins, was again sacked, the peaceable citizens butchered, their wives and daughters foully outraged. The very choirs of the churches were stained with blood, the pyxes and crucifixes were torn from the altars, the tombs of the ancient electors were broken open, the corpses, stripped of their cerecloths and ornaments, were dragged about the streets. The skull of the father of the Duchess of Orléans was beaten to fragments by the soldiers of a prince among the ladies of whose splendid court she held the foremost place. And yet a discerning eye might have perceived that, unfortunate as the Confederates seemed to have been, the advantage had really been on their side. The contest was quite as much a financial as a military contest. The French king had, some months before, said that the last piece of gold would carry the day, and he now began painfully to feel the truth of the saying. England was undoubtedly hard-pressed by public burdens, but still she stood up erect. France, meanwhile, was fast sinking. Her recent efforts had been too much for her strength, and had left her spent and unnerved. Never had her rulers shown more ingenuity in devising taxes, or more severity in exacting them. But by no ingenuity, by no severity, was it possible to raise the sums necessary for another such campaign as that of 1693. In England the harvest had been abundant. In France the corn and the wine had again failed. The people, as usual, railed at the government. The government, with shameful ignorance, or more shameful dishonesty, tried to direct the public indignation against the dealers in grain. Decrees appeared which seemed to have been elaborately framed for the purpose of turning dearth into famine. The nation was assured that there was no reason for uneasiness, that there was more than a sufficient supply of food, and that the scarcity had been produced by the villainous arts of misers, who locked up their stores in the hope of making enormous gains. Commissioners were appointed to inspect the granaries, and were empowered to send to market all the corn that was not necessary for the consumption of the proprietors. Such interference, of course, increased the suffering which it was meant to relieve. But in the midst of the general distress, there was an artificial plenty in one favored spot. The most arbitrary prince must always stand in some awe of an immense mass of human beings collected in the neighborhood of his own palace. Apprehensions similar to those which had induced the Caesars to extort from Africa and Egypt the means of pampering the rabble of Rome, induced Louis to aggravate the misery of twenty provinces for the purpose of keeping one huge city in good humor. He ordered bread to be distributed in all the parishes of the capital at less than half the market price. The English Jacobites were stupid enough to extol the wisdom and humanity of this arrangement. The harvest, they said, had been good in England and bad in France, and yet the loaf was cheaper at Paris than in London, and the explanation was simple. The French had a sovereign whose heart was French, and who watched over his people with the solicitude of a father, while the English were cursed with a Dutch tyrant, who sent their corn to Holland. The truth was that a week of such fatherly government as that of Louis would have raised all England in arms from Northumberland to Cornwall. That there might be abundance at Paris, the people of Normandy and Anjou were stuffing themselves with nettles. 
that there might be tranquillity at Paris, the peasantry were fighting with the bargemen and the troops all along the Loire and the Seine. Multitudes fled from those rural districts where bread cost five sous a pound to the happy place where bread was to be had for two sous a pound. It was necessary to drive the famished crowds back by force from the barriers, and to denounce the most terrible punishments against all who should not go home and starve quietly. Louis was sensible that the strength of France had been overstrained by the exertions of the last campaign. Even if her harvest and her vintage had been abundant, she would not have been able to do in 1694 what she had done in 1693. And it was utterly impossible that, in a season of extreme distress, she should again send into the field armies superior in number on every point to the armies of the coalition. New conquests were not to be expected. It would be much if the harassed and exhausted land, beset on all sides by enemies, should be able to sustain a defensive war without any disaster. So able a politician as the French king could not but feel that it would be for his advantage to treat with the Allies while they were so awed by the remembrance of the gigantic efforts which his kingdom had just made, and before the collapse which had followed those efforts should become visible. He had long been communicating through various channels with some members of the Confederacy, and trying to induce them to separate themselves from the rest, but he had as yet made no overture tending to a general pacification for he knew that there could be no general pacification unless he was prepared to abandon the cause of James, and to acknowledge the Prince and Princess of Orange as King and Queen of England. This was in truth the point on which everything turned. What should be done with those great fortresses which Louis had unjustly seized and annexed to his empire in time of peace, Luxembourg which overawed the Moselle, and Strasbourg which domineered over the Upper Rhine? What should be done with the places which he had recently won in open war? Philipsburg, Mons, and Namur, Huy and Charleroi. What barrier should be given to the states-general? On what terms Lorraine should be restored to its hereditary dukes? These were assuredly not unimportant questions. But the all-important question was whether England was to be, as she had been under James, a dependency of France, or, as she was under William and Mary, a power of the first rank. If Louis really wished for peace, he must bring himself to recognize the sovereigns whom he had so often designated as usurpers. Could he bring himself to recognize them? His superstition, his pride, his regard for the unhappy exiles who were pining at St. Germain's, his personal dislike of the indefatigable and unconquerable adversary who had been constantly crossing his path during twenty years, were on one side. His interests and those of his people were on the other. He must have been sensible that it was not in his power to subjugate the English, that he must at last leave them to choose their government for themselves, and that what he must do at last it would be best to do soon. Yet he could not at once make up his mind to what was so disagreeable to him. He, however, opened a negotiation with the States-General through the intervention of Sweden and Denmark, and send a confidential emissary to confer in secret at Brussels with Dykvelt, who possessed the entire confidence of William. There was much discussion about matters of secondary importance, but the great question remained unsettled. The French agent used, in private conversation, expressions plainly implying that the government which he represented was prepared to recognize William and married, but no formal assurance could be obtained from him. Just at the same time the King of Denmark informed the Allies that he was endeavouring to prevail on France not to insist on the restoration of James 
as an indispensable condition of peace, but did not say that his endeavors had as yet been successful. Meanwhile, Avaux, who was now ambassador at Stockholm, informed the king of Sweden that, as the dignity of all crowned heads had been outraged in the person of James, the most Christian king felt assured that not only neutral powers, but even the emperor, would try to find some expedient which might remove so grave a cause of quarrel. The expedient at which Avaux hinted doubtless was that James should waive his rights, and that the Prince of Wales should be sent to England, bred a Protestant, adopted by William and Mary, and declared their heir. To such an arrangement William would probably have had no personal objection, but we may be assured that he never would have consented to make it a condition of peace with France. Who should reign in England was a question to be decided by England alone. It might well be suspected that a negotiation conducted in this manner was merely meant to divide the Confederates. William understood the whole importance of the conjuncture. He had not, it may be, the eye of a great captain for all the turns of a battle but he had, in the highest perfection, the eye of a great statesman for all the turns of a war. That France had at length made overtures to him was a sufficient proof that she felt herself spent and sinking. That those overtures were made with extreme reluctance and hesitation proved that she had not yet come to a temper in which it was possible to have peace with her on fair terms. He saw that the enemy was beginning to give ground, and that this was the time to assume the offensive, to push forward, to bring up every reserve, but whether the opportunity should be seized or lost it did not belong to him to decide. The King of France might levy troops and exact taxes without any limit save that which the laws of nature impose on despotism, but the King of England could do nothing without the support of the House of Commons, and the House of Commons, though it had hitherto supported him zealously and liberally, was not a body on which he could rely. It had indeed got into a state which perplexed and alarmed all the most sagacious politicians of that age. There was something appalling in the union of such boundless power and such boundless caprice. The fate of the whole civilized world depended on the votes of the representatives of the English people, and there was no public man who could venture to say with confidence what those representatives might not be induced to vote within twenty-four hours. William painfully felt that it was scarcely possible for a prince dependent on an assembly so violent at one time, so languid at another, to effect anything great. Indeed, though no sovereign did so much to secure and to extend the power of the House of Commons, no sovereign loved the House of Commons less. Nor is this strange, for he saw that house at the very worst. He saw it when it had just acquired the power and had not yet acquired the gravity of a senate. In his letters to Heinzius, he perpetually complains of the endless talking, the factious squabbling, the inconstancy, the dilatoriness of the body which his situation made it necessary for him to treat with deference. His complaints were by no means unfounded, but he had not discovered either the cause or the cure of the evil. End of section 5